Thank you, Carol. And do keep open uh, page 564 as we start to work through Isaiah 42, these wonderful words. I wonder how you respond when you come face to face with God. That day will come, and what will you say at that encounter? When I was growing up back in 1977, and church advertisements were actually free on television, all the different churches would uh, put their ads on. And so I'm going to show you uh, one of those ads from back then. It's 45 years old, so you'll laugh at how old it is. But here's what one of the response was when you encountered God. In this big old city, isn't it a pity we don't say get to heaven, what do you think you'll say? I think you would say g'day. With quarter glasses. There you go. Told you you'd laugh. <laughs> face to face with God, when you get to heaven, what do you think you'll say? Good day. Is that what you'll say? Or is that what you think you'll say when you encounter God? Is that the right thing to say when you encounter God? G'day is certainly not what Isaiah said when he encountered God. In chapter 6, Isaiah saw God. He saw God in the temple. Well, he actually didn't see God in the temple because God is so glory. It was just the very bottom of his robe that could fit into the temple. Uh, as grand as the temple was in Jerusalem, that huge building, it was just so small for him. And as God stood... In that temple, there were six winged angels covering their eyes and their feet because the glory of God was so dazzling. And those six winged angels called out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the whole mountain on which the, the temple stood shook and the temple was filled with smoke. I tried to Google a drawing that captured this and none would do it justice but this is the best that I could find. That glorious temple in Jerusalem that stood at the temple of, at the centre of the city, almost invisible because it was so small and overshadowed by the glory of God. And Isaiah, at this encounter with God, said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah was right to say that, because Israel, through its history, had experienced God, 
and the God they experienced was a God of absolute power. No human ruler could stand against him. As Sam took us last week, you remember that he cups in his hands the whole Pacific Ocean. Nations compared to him were nothing. Modern USA, modern China, just like a speck of dust that you need a magnifying glass to see. This is the all-powerful God. But in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah that we looked at last year, we see that God pronounces he is going to do something that is not natural for him, something that he doesn't want to do. He is about to inflict judgment on Israel. Israel that he loves, that for a thousand years he has cared for, he has protected and he has blessed. And now, as punishment for their willful year after year after year rejection of his love and authority over them, because they did ignore him, they worshipped any gods that they could find. Oh, here's a god, let's make a, out of wood a god, and let's sacrifice our own children to this god. That is who they would follow, rather than the god who was there. They turned their back on God. And for centuries, like a loving father, despite being spat on like that by his children, God kept showering them with blessings while warning them that they would be judged if they continued to be like this. And finally, God said, enough is enough. Now judgment will drop on you and these terrible things I have promised will befall you. And I am doing it so that your hearts might be transformed and you turn back to me. And at this time in Isaiah, having been given the full blast of this coming certain judgment and punishment from the hand of the majestic, all-powerful God, the people again encounter God. They behold their God. They behold him as he speaks to them. And God, as he speaks, tell them how they should respond to this encounter. And what should their response be? What should their response be knowing that they are under the sure and certain judgment of God? What would our response be? G'day. Woe is me. What should the response be? Verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fill fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, the desert and the cities, lift up their voice. The villages of Kedar in, that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Sela sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Don't you find that astounding? And even unthinkably impossible such a response as the people behold their God. The response isn't that silly unthought through good day and it's not even the valid and thought through woe is me from Isaiah as he sees the glory of God but the response God calls for is sing. Well, when do you sing? You sing when you're happy. If your team loses, you don't sing the team song, do you? And when your team wins, you shout it with all of your breath. But now here are the people that are surrounded by the vision of the judgment of God upon them. 
and they are told to sing. Now, in their history, God had always been with them until he declared his judgment. In days gone by, this little nation that had no reason to be victorious always was, and it was victorious against great and powerful enemies. You know the story of David and Goliath, David, little Israel, Goliath, all the other nations, Goliath robed in all of his armour and his nine foot high and all of that, and little shepherd boy David with his little stone slaying Goliath. That is the story, that captures what Israel had been like, and so they were right to sing songs of joy in those days. But now they will sing a new song, an even better song than they once sang. And there is no place where this song shouldn't and couldn't be sung. The seas, the islands, the deserts, the mountains, there's not much left that's habitable, is there? And Kedar and Selah, you can see on that little map that I've got there, I've given you roughly where Kedar and Selah are likely to be. Israel comprises the blue and the gold areas. And you can see that Kedar and Selah are way outside the bounds of Israel. They are no man's land. They are a land where, Israel was, where the God of Israel was unknown, or at least if he was known, the words that were spoken about him were disgust and torment because these are the nations that stood in attacking Israel. And now even there, the songs of praise to God will be sung. You see, this encounter with God in chapter 42 can and must lead to nothing but singing of praise to the glory of God. G'day doesn't cut it, does it? And Isaiah's woe doesn't fit with what God has commanded that they do. But what will happen as these people encounter God is a new song will just tumble out of their mouths, a song of never-ending praise, and you just can't stop singing it. It has to be expressed. And so God speaks again. The people encounter God in his speech, and God speaks to them in their dark, sad, bleak days. And as these people behold their God... It leads to nothing but praise and thanks. That's worth finding out more about, isn't it? Have you ever, in your experience, seen or heard praise like that? Praise that's everywhere. Praise that's unceasing. Praise that comes out of the depths of your heart and praise that lasts forever. In my experience, there have been times of great praise, but that praise has always proved to be hollow or short-lived or not shared by everybody. Praise is easy to give, but it's not real. People can give you a thousand Facebook likes and they then turn vile in their hostility towards you. The praise can be short-lived, full of fervency, but it doesn't last. Here's a picture of the Ukraine in 2014, where in that year 100 statues of Lenin were toppled as the people said no more to Russia and no more to the Soviet Union. But of course we know what's happening now. Or not everybody shares it. Here is a picture of the American President John F. Kennedy, adored by screaming thousands of people as his cavalcade went past 
And that photo is just seconds before he was shot dead by someone who hated him. But the new song of the encounter with God will not be fake. It will not be hollow. It will not be cheap. It will not be temporary. And it will be sung by everyone. So let us have a look at what could possibly cause such a song of praise like this. And what is the content of that song of praise? So you've got your Bibles open there at page 564, or your devices are live. Not doing Facebook likes. And uh, Isaiah 42. The opening verses of Isaiah 42 are written like lyrics to a song. And in fact, Isaiah 42 is the first of four songs. Songs that are about someone called a servant. And so, not surprisingly, these four songs are called the servant songs. You can find the others in chapter 49, in chapter 50, and in chapter 52 and 53. And here in these songs, the one who speaks, God speaks, God who spoke and creation out of nothing was formed. God speaks, the one who controls and orders all things so that nothing happens except by what he desires. The God who speaks, who warned of judgment and then brought about that judgment. The God who speaks about the future. You see, we all have hopes for the future, don't we? We hope and pray for what will happen in Ukraine. We hope for what Australia will be like after the 21st of May. We hope and dream of what life will be like if and when COVID becomes a distant memory. And some of our hopes will happen and some of them won't. But when the all-powerful God speaks, it will happen because it always has and so his words are not just maybes and perhapses, but they are certain. And so we will and must listen because they are not suggestions. These are absolute realities. And so you're ready to hear God speak? Hear such important words that you just cannot help but praise him? Verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. The word servant here can sometimes be translated slave. We treat servants and slaves as nobodies. Slaves are invisible. They are just there to make our lives easier. The closest image I could think of the other day was the person at the car wash. You don't know anything about them, about the person who cleans your car. They just deliver your car to you and they could be invisible. They could be a robot. And God's servant has one thing in common with the man at the car wash. And that is, he delivers something that you need and it is good for you. But he is unlike the car wash attendant in so many other ways because this servant is selected by God. God whose glory and splendour more than filled the temple. God who exists so that nothing can compare to him now upholds his servant. He says, look at him as radiant as God is. He says, look at this one. He is my special one. This servant is anything but invisible. And not just that this servant will do a good job, 
But the servant is the one in whom God's soul delights. God loves him. God is besotted by him. God, who has no other that can compare to him, now shares his character with the servant. He puts his spirit on his servant. And the power and the success that the servant has, because he will be powerful and successful, he is powerful and successful because God has empowered him. He's put his spirit on him. And so as grand and as all-consuming as God is, the servant is the beloved one of God who deserves similar praise. So this servant brings justice. This beloved one, in verse 1, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Oh, that there would be a country where justice is everywhere. I think Australia has as good a justice system as anywhere in the world has seen. Certainly in recent days you see the immorality of using the legal systems to destroy your opponents. But Australia is pretty good like that. But even here, money can still buy favours. Fame still dazzles so that truth is lost. Imagine this land where there will be justice for everyone at every point. And imagine if that was true, not just of Australia, but of every land where there was no more tyrants, no more abusers of people. Wouldn't that be breathtaking? But the word justice doesn't just mean a perfect legal system. The word that is used here for justice is much bigger than that. It's about setting creation right. Setting creation right so that there will be no more global warming fears, no more death from shark attacks and you could swim happily down at Maroubra, no more cancer, no more fatalities from car accidents, no more car accidents, no more youth suicide, no more broken families. That is what the servant will do in his spirit-empowered strength. Don't you long for that? How could this happen? It would take extraordinary power to accomplish that, wouldn't it? And it will be accomplished, this extraordinary accomplishment that the servant will do, he will accomplish in a strange way. Verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice, make it hurt in the street a bruised reed he won't break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench he will faithfully bring forth justice he won't grow faint or be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law now i'm not going to go through each of those images but you get the idea that the servant will be gentle but even though he is gentle he will achieve the full and total restoration of creation. As wonderful as all of this is, as I've shared it with you today, it is so easy for us, isn't it, just to shrug our shoulders and ignore it? As you behold the God who is spoken of here, I suspect some of you are thinking, oh, here I know who this is. And some of you are thinking, oh, here we go again with that wishful thinking. But look at verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass. 
and the new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. You see, God speaks these words in verse 9 and draws our attention to what's happened in the past, those things he calls the former things. The way that God has always cared for and blessed his world. And then more recently for Israel, he has cared for them just as he has promised. And the way he has punished Israel just as he has promised. Everything that God has promised, he will achieve and has achieved. These are the former things. God does everything that he has promised. Look at my track record. And now the new things. Justice. Creation restored. God says, what makes you think I can't do them, we who shrug our shoulders at this? Is there a human power that can't stop me, that can stop me? Never has been one so far. Is there a spiritual power that could destroy my plan? Certainly not. Are there circumstances that mean that what God promises will not happen? That has never been a problem for God in the past. You would think then, what would make you think then, that this promise that God makes, as grand as it is, won't be kept. God always keeps his promise. The day of worldwide, total, eternal justice, where you cannot find anywhere, anything that is not quite right, will come. That's worth singing a new song for, isn't it? If this jaw-droppingly amazing thing will happen and happen through the servant, then we must know then who is the servant. And some of you know who the servant is, don't you? So you're jumping straight to it. And some of you don't know who the servant is. And so I've got the joy of disclosing that to you now. The servant is Jesus. Israel had to wait 700 years after this song was first mouthed. But then Jesus came. And when he came, what a splash he made in setting things right. Read it in the New Testament, in Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, one of those four Gospels. There is a man, as you read those Gospels, who was an out outcast of society because he had an incurable skin disease a days before antibiotics, so no one would touch him because they were afraid that they would catch it. But Jesus touches him. And he is instantly healed. Or there's a little girl dead on her bed. And Jesus takes her hand and she sits up and she is cuddled by her crying parents. Or there is the woman with the unstoppable flow of blood. Secretly, or so she thought, she touches Jesus and she is instantly healed the blind men, the crippled men, the demon-possessed, the howling storm stilled with just two words, everything set right. If you were there in that day, you would have seen creation untwisted and restored. Behold, here is the servant who didn't cry aloud, who didn't lift up his voice, born in Bethlehem, lived as a carpenter's son in Nazareth, crucified in Jerusalem for you and for me to make us able to call God Father, to set the world right.
That'd be enough for a new song. But there is even more. The servant is Jesus. No one but him could restore creation. But as you read about the servant in this song and the ones that follow, you start to scratch your head trying to work it out because sometimes it seems that the servant is Israel. Not wicked Israel under the judgment of God, but an Israel that's made pure and clean. That is, the saved people of God. And I've got to say, when you're scratching your head thinking that, that hunch is right. Because sometimes beautifully restored Israel is the servant. And so how then do you hold these two things together? We know that Jesus is the servant, but somehow beautiful Israel is also the servant. Well, to explain it, I'm going to give you a football example and an AFL one at that. Now, I'm sorry if, all of, if some of you have turned off because of that, but you'll think of a better example than I have. I want to talk about the Sydney Swans and their great player. They call him Buddy, Lance Franklin. A few weeks ago at the SCG, he kicked his thousandth goal, which they say will never happen again. This is a scene from the ground about a minute after he kicked the thousand goal, thousandth goal. There are 10,000 spectators on the SCG. When Buddy achieved this, the whole team shared in the victory of the celebration. And kicking a thousand goals means that your team is likely to win and win very often. Buddy is the reason that the Swans are doing very well. Without him, they wouldn't be where they are now. You see, he enables the team to be what they are. They win, they share in the fact that he is so good. While he is the focus of attention, the team actually gets the benefits as well, the victories of his extraordinary skill. And so it is with the servant Jesus. Jesus is the servant. Jesus is the one who saves his people. Jesus is the one who makes them clean. Jesus enables them to come to God and to belong to him. He is the one who sets creation right. But because Christians are part of his team, we belong to him and therefore share in the benefits as well. His victory in setting us right with God means that we too are invited to share in how he achieves this victory. You see, if you're a Christian person here this morning, we are not just bystanders and onlookers as the servant does his work. God will use us as team members of the servant as he sets creation right. All those little things that seem to have no consequence because of the servant God uses our activity to set creation right. Helping out with Jesus Club, helping out with little tigers, praying for one another, making choices that are right, that come at cost because you want to honour Jesus. God uses every one of those little invisible activities to set creation right, to bring in the justice that the servant will most certainly do. I think that is an even greater reason to sing a new song. Not just that creation is restored, but that we are honoured in playing a part in that work. That is a song worth singing. So Israel, under the judgement of God, before the servant's songs, used to sing praise to God 
as they inhabited the land that God gave them, and they were right to sing those songs of praise to God. But then, with the judgment of God for their disobedience, their praise falters and their songs fell silent. But at the coming of the servant, at Jesus, our sins are forgiven, forgiven forever. And even though you and I still fail and don't even live up to what we hope to be, these shortcomings will never, ever be held against us. God's arms are always outstretched to say, welcome home, my child. That's what the servant has achieved. Jesus came, and while he came as gentle, while he didn't cry aloud or lift up his voice, he will also gloriously return, accompanied by armies of angels, where everything in existence will stop and will not be able to avert its eyes from his glory. And everything and everyone will glorify him. And while it is not here fully today, the day will dawn when he brings forth justice, when the wolf will lay down with the lamb, where the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea, where the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the lame will leap like a deer, where no longer there will be a dreaming that death will be defeated because death will be a thing of the past. No longer will there be injustice for that will be ended. No longer will there be the desire to have the day where we'll need to say sorry to God for there will be no need for that. No longer will there be yearning that we and everyone will see the magnificent glory of God for it will be before us all the time. For that day will come and the new song that we declare now will be ours physically and forever. So along with Isaiah, echoing what God commands, behold your God. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise to the ends of the earth. Heavenly Father, we ask you that our song might be this. Forgive us the times where we shrug our shoulders and say, I know this. Thank you so much that what you foretold, you brought about in that small place at that brief moment in time when Jesus walked on earth, but that we will be recipients and participants in it on the day when he gloriously returns. And so we want to say thank you that we can put this new song on our lips. Amen.